everybody who listens to futureprimitive.org. Joanna Harcourt-Smith here. Very, very happy and honored to be on the phone with Susan Griffin. Susan Griffin is a poet, essayist, playwright, and screenwriter. She was born in Los Angeles, California, in the midst of the Second World War and the Holocaust. And these events had a lasting effect on her thinking. Named by Atni Reader as one of the hundred most important visionaries of the new millennium, she has been a recipient of an NAA grant and a one-year MacArthur grant for peace and international cooperation. Her work has been translated in 17 languages and is taught in colleges and universities internationally. She has published several volumes of poetry, although most of her work is written in prose. I will now uh, give you a list of her books, which are many. Her latest book, which was published in April last year, is called Wrestling with the Angel of Democracy. Her second most recent book is The Book of Courtesans, a catalogue of their virtues. Before that, A Chorus of Stones and the internationally acclaimed book Woman and Nature. There is also the Eros of Everyday Life, and importantly as well, What Her Body Thought. I could tell you many more things about Susan Griffin's life and career, but I would rather we start our conversation together. So Susan, would you like to talk about your latest book, The Angel of Democracy? Yes, yes, I would. And of course, we know that that's 
isn't true in very many histories, certainly not in British history even. I mean, you know, we got we got our, our concept of freedom and having rights from the Magna Carta, from the British that existed many, you know, centuries before the, the American Revolution. But the basic psychology is that you look you have a sort of you almost worshipful relationship of the monarch, kindred to uh, a feeling of the empowerment of a parent over a child. Right. And and in a lot of the writing about, uh, early writing about democracy, both uh, the American Revolution, both what was, uh, writers who were defending monarchy and those who were arguing against it in the exchange, for instance, between Spilmer and John Locke, mm-hmm. uh, the metaphor of the state being like the parent came up all the time. Yes. So, but that that's a, that's a not an easy shift to make, and I think we're still making it in the sense that uh, one of the things that happened, you know, I, I, you mentioned that I grew up in the age of the of the Second World War and the Holocaust. And I was yes. really profoundly impacted by that, yes. and I was also impacted by the reaction worldwide to the horror of of the genocide and and torture and and a lot of the consciousness that many people who called the 60s generation yes. and, and were often described by the right wing as being wild-eyed. And in fact, you know, we were schooled by uh, the Holocaust and we, we had these terrible examples of torture, which is why so many of us have been so opposed to the United States involving itself in torture now. Exactly. But it, it, being raised in that period, one of the things that there was this profound revulsion, even though it was a rather, the 50s were a rather conservative period in many ways. Mm-hmm. The 60s did come out of the 50s, and one of the things that was happening in the 50s was a revolution in child-rearing methods. Um, uh, Dr. Spock's uh, book on raising children was published, I believe, in 46. It was right at the end of the war. Mm-hmm. And my parents, uh, who my mother was raised in a Republican household, my father was uh, you know, it wasn't clear. He would vote either way. Either he was one of those you call an independent. He felt sometimes Republican, sometimes Democratic. But he was a working man and a union man. Uh-huh. But they weren't. They weren't in any way progressive. Mm-hmm. And yet they raised me much closer to the methods of Dr. Spock than, say, my mother was raised, and certainly than the way that my grandparents were raised, and later I was raised by my grandparents, so I got to experience that. Right. Uh, what I do is I relate those child-rearing methods to democracy, because in a, democ- you know, in a, in a democracy, when a child asks a question, uh, questions maybe the ruling of a parent or the, the decision of a parent. In democratic child-rearing, you, you, you try to explain to the child your reasoning. I mean, you, you're, you're going to stick by it, you know, because children will, 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 will say, oh, I... It's just fine for me to run across the street without you holding my hand, but but you will, and you say no, you're not going to do that. But you, but but you do explain why. You give them a chance to That's be reasonable right. to reason because you're trying to raise somebody. I mean, it may not be your your immediate uh, motivation, but it comes from living in a democracy in which citizens are encouraged to and ought to be able to reason for themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how they can vote intelligently. That's how they can organize movements intelligently, sign petitions intelligently, write letters, anything they can do to create social movements change. They need to be able to reason independently. And you and if you if you say to a child, as was done in the sort of old-fashioned way of raising children, which I look at as, you know, the monarchical way of raising children or the 
spoil way of raising a child. Right. Now that's why can't I cross the street by myself because I said so. Exactly. Exactly. And so the, the, so the book goes through looking at how democracy evolved along with um, the evolution of the inner life, and I use my own life story as a way to sort of illustrate it, not because my life story is very important, but just because um, I, I, I know my own inner life, of course, very intimately, and I can use examples. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, you reminded me that um, Dieu est mon droit, which is the um, the motto the, the, of the, God and my right. God and my right. And uh, then what I'm seeing from what you're saying is uh, uh, my mother took that on as her as her own uh, motto. And uh, I was uh, wondering, that's on the personal level, and I was wondering, I mean, wasn't George Bush the absolute epitome, the, the, the total maximum of God is my right? Yes, and even more so than we, re- than we realized when he was president. And we were, you know, people were already feeling he was quite dictatorial in many ways, uh, including all the signing statements and, and things that we knew about. But what's come out from these memos, some authored by uh, John Yu, who's a lawyer on the faculty of Bolt Hall in the town where I live, Berkeley, California, and I think that should not be the case. He mm-hmm. is under indictment now in the Spanish courts for breaking international law. That's right, law. that's right. And, but he, uh, Mr. Yu and Addington and a number of other people issued these memos, that uh, legal memos that basically said the president has the right to do absolutely anything he wants. He can abrogate the entire Bill of Rights. So during the Bush presidency, in fact, if the Army or CIA or FBI, whoever they wanted to send, wanted to come into your home and decide if you were a terrorist, they could arrest you without charge, send you away to a prison. Nobody would know where you were and not give you legal representation. That's right. I mean, it's, it's, these are the very most basic rights that, and the reason that, that the patriots, the original American patriots, the, the founders, knew that these rights were needed is that they had been in a struggle with the British Empire. Mm-hmm. The British Empire had been abusing them all in this way. Yeah. And they had been doing these kind of things, and so they knew uh, how important it is not to give a government that sort of power over people, that... I'm a great admirer of, um, you know, the drama of the gifted child. Oh, yes, I am too. Yes. Um, tell me her name. Alice Miller. Alice Miller. I actually knew her for a while. I mean, I, I do still know her, but I've, I've lost track of, I'm not in touch with her any longer. But uh, wonderful, wonderful work. Wonderful work. And so here's a question. You see, um, when I read Alice Miller's work and uh, when I read your work, I realize that um, in the period, in the George Bush period, uh, we've come very close to propagating the same kind of atmosphere as in the the patriarchal uh, German situation before the war. Do you think, Susan Griffin, that... uh, We've um, 
we've escaped that, we've taken a turn from that. Yes, I, I, I do think so, I, and I hope it remains so. I mean, I think that the Republican Party has, it, they, they finally realize that racism doesn't work for them as, as a political tactic, and, uh, but they, they haven't, they, they're still doing red baiting. Anybody who talks about having a medical care plan that, that, that is actually viable, you know, then gets red-baited and accused of being socialist. And there are many aspects of the American system that that we that are uh, could be described as socialist. I mean, if you want to get strict about it, building highways is socialist. You know, and, mm-hmm. and this idea that everything has to be privatized is ridiculous and outmoded. And it's it's that sort of right-wing uh, stance has stunted. The political discussion in the United States, and I think it's very unfortunate because it leaves us finally. I think it's not that racism has ended; it certainly hasn't, but it can't be manipulated in the same way politically. But I would like to have us, because our real protection uh, as democratic in democracy, the yes. way to preserve democracy, is to have an open and free debate on every issue without this sort of witch hunt. Uh, against people who have unpopular points of view. In the first place, we have a, a, a I think it's Bernie Sanders from Vermont, is an open socialist. So, you know, it's, it's, he's not like the devil. And uh, he does very good work, Sanders. Uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But also, uh, we need, you know, the fact that we everybody's afraid to utter that word or sound at all like socialist means that we don't really discuss what was wrong with the Soviet Union. And I, I know a lot of people, I know people who are progressives, who are still back there defending Stalin. I mean, I don't know very many of them, and they're quite wow. a bit older. And they managed to stay in some sort of twilight zone of reality, like a lot of the right wing does. But but the fact is that, that we haven't had an open enough discussion and discourse. What was wrong with the Soviet Union? Why did they fall? It wasn't just because... Uh, the Reagan people were clever, clever in making them go into uh, get, getting into an arms race. For one thing, we had a, a powerful citizen diplomacy movement, and Russian uh, citizens of the Soviet Union were introduced to a lot of democratic ideas and ways of life, and they found that very attractive. But also, that system crashed economically. It crashed way way before ours mm-hmm. did, but it crashed for the same reasons, I believe, and that is that. It was top-heavy in every way you can think of and way too centralized. And Mm -hmm. that's what we've been looking at. There were uh, laws that, in fact, a Republican, Teddy Roosevelt, put into place. Mm -hmm. They were laws against trust, and it wasn't based on some sort of ideology or abstract concept, but it was a clear understanding that trusts are anti-democratic, and and they're so big that they're, they're dangerous. And, you know, that's what happened, by the way, in the Depression, in mm-hmm. the Great Depression, is when these big, big corporations fell the whole, and the banking system fell the whole system fell. And then all these, we're no longer enforcing the trust busting laws, but also these laws after the Depression were put into place that didn't allow a bank to merge with an insurance company, for instance. Yes. Stock exchange company. And so these are stock trading companies. So now... We have these companies like AIG that are too, we're afraid to let them fall because they would bring down so many other companies with them. And this, you know, I don't know whether AIG ought to be bailed out and saved or not. I really don't understand it well enough to know whether that's 
be done. Yes, yes. I have a strong opinion about that. What I do have a strong opinion about that is that we ought to start dismantling these huge monsters. They are intrinsically yeah. anti-democratic, and that was the problem with the Soviet Union, is when you have so much wow. power, uh, it, it, is a, it becomes tyrannical. Yeah. And it's also economically and ecologically, and they go together. Obama's very wise to understand that, and I and I write about that in Wrestling with the Angel of Democracy, how mm -hmm. intertwined they are. Mm -hmm. You look at our history with Emerson and Jefferson's idea about the land, and in the Declaration of Independence, yes, bases the right of the United States to cede from Britain and become an independent country. It bases that not on uh, uh, God-given rights, but on God on um, rights given by nature, and nature, capital N, God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but this, the Soviet Union fell because, uh, not only because of the, you know, the, the total lack of democracy. When you have a lack of democracy, for one thing, it gets stupid. Because democracy, yeah. one of the reasons that democracy has, has produced so many innovations, wonderful art forms, wonderful writers and artists, uh, wonderful uh, technical innovations, wonderful science, uh, brilliant political thinking is because it is pluralistic and mm -hmm. we don't have one single way of thinking and we don't have one single ruler and one, you know, we, we tolerate all these different points of view. But moreover, economically, uh, centralization is a disaster. For one thing, then it means you've got to ship goods over huge uh, swaths of land. The United States is huge. So you've got to ship things all over the place. That's right. Broke, that broke the back of the Soviet Union. They would be producing, Georgia would be producing lumber. They would then have to ship it to Moscow where it would be refined and then ship it back to Georgia. Yeah, fossil that's just fuel. foolishness. It's a waste of energy, which yes. we're very worried about now. Yes. It is a waste of carbon emissions. Yep. And it is uh, and it's economically a waste of a great deal of money and time and labor, which counts as, as money. And, and so uh, the Soviet Union fell from its, the weight of its own centralization. And we have centralization now, and the, Demo the Republicans are always crowing and crowing about the centralization of government. That's not our problem. That's not, the, uh, although Bush ignored the separation of powers within the federal government, that mm -hmm. was a serious mm -hmm. problem. Our federal government doesn't have too much power now. The people who have too much power now are the corporations. That's right. They have far more power over most of our lives than the government does. Yeah. And that's the centralization we need to be worried about. Well, I want to tell you what I really appreciate about you, Susan Griffin, is that, you know, for me, I, I feel that in Europe we are always willing to talk about politics. We talk a lot about politics. And here we don't uh, talk about it enough, in my, my view. I agree with you. Uh, but here I have learned to take in account very deeply the personal. And so to me, you have uh, braided these two things, the European thing and the, and the American thing. Oh, that's very interesting. Personal and the political. And uh, I absolutely love that. Thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, I mean, they're both very much a part of me. And by the way, I began to, uh, I, there were two, two things that began to make me quite, because, you know, I'm, I was adopted by a progressive family as a teenager, and I've, I've always been very progressive, but the, the, there were two influences that, that, that honed my criticism of the Soviet Union even before it fell. Mm -hmm. And the first was reading Nigel Mandelson's Hope Against Hope, which is a brilliant book, 
and I, I yeah. thought her the hounding, Stalin's hounding of her, or her husband, the great poet Arthur Stalin, and the book is great in its own right. And the second was my trips to Paris and my discussions. As you know that I love Paris, and I, yes. I go there frequently, yes. and, I, and I have friends there, and I've had long discussions with groups of friends there, and there was a certain point when the thaw was happening, when the um, East Europe was breaking apart from the mm-hmm. Soviet Union, and it was they who opened up these criticisms of the Soviet Union to me and made me think more seriously about it, because that wasn't happening in America, because the polemic was so powerful. Either you're a forest or against us, either you're a red or you're a patriot. And that sort of division, what that does, it it wipes out critical thinking from every direction. Exactly. And we need critical thinking right now. It's absolutely essential to us. We're facing, you know, uh, threats from every direction possible, from ecology, economy, uh, world unrest, violence. We, We have to start thinking. We really do. And we have to... Spend a little time thinking without connecting it to political, to politics. Just thinking, and then move politically. But let's do some deeper thinking and not have it be so ideological. Um, and I do think that tying this to events in the private life is very important because I don't think you really can understand political events without understanding the, uh, how that gets woven into private life and vice versa. That's right. But, you know, so that there's a whole unconscious level of political decision-making that goes on that also needs to be examined. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the personal, in my view, the personal is missing from the European conversation and vice versa. Uh, I'm going to ask you a really um, strange question, but do you think that there are enough intelligent people at this time, um, meaning people uh, who can make uh, connections in their minds so that there can be a discourse that, um, that will help us? I think there's a, an enormous paradigm shift occurring. I think the connection between private and public only went so far during the feminist movement. It went to you know, the personal is political, and then where people took that on a national level was, okay, then it's a political issue if Bill Clinton has an affair with Monica Lewinsky. I don't think so. That's not my opinion. I think the political issue in there is the sexual attraction that that men in power have for women, and that's an issue that ought to be talked to, but the pillory Bill Clinton for that, as much as I dislike the fact that he did that, is really to misunderstand that issue. And so we, we have to go really deeper into that interconnection. We, you know, that, that women still find men with power so so very, very attractive. And by the way, the talented, articulate women are often shunned for the same reason that very attractive, powerful, very intelligent, powerful men are found attractive. So the, the, the issues that are there that haven't been examined really yet, there's a whole kind of, there's, a, there's an underlying hatred of women right now. Right. Despite the fact that Hillary Clinton was a candidate, she had a lot of that aimed at her. And, I, you know, I was for Obama, but I didn't like that sort of stuff aimed at Hillary. And I don't like it now aimed at uh, Nancy Pelosi. 
I think right. Nancy Pelosi is doing an astonishing job. Of course, I don't agree with all the stands she takes, but uh, uh, we're very lucky to have her in the position she's in, and she's, she's very adroit. She's an amazing politician. She's brilliant. And I think there's an animus against her that's much uh, stronger than would be uh, were she not a middle-aged woman. And so I think we're facing this uh, prejudice has not gotten untangled because it's very, very deep in the roots of the psyche. Well, you're raising, pa- you're raising passion in me because um, what I'm thinking about is, is Angela Merkel uh, messing around with young men? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, but the, it's fascinating what you're saying that uh, um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't play uh, women uh, women in power middle aged women in power are not, are not found attractive. I guess. Yes, 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 that's right. And you know, and I don't have any objection, by the way, for somebody young being with somebody older. That's fine. That's it's you know. I mean, I, I think let's let's get away from this sexual prudery and not put it on that level. Oh, yeah. We need to look at is the, these deeper prejudices and tendencies and what they tell us about, you know, mis- because if you look at misogyny, it's not just a women's rights issue, and I shouldn't say just women's rights because that's a terribly serious issue, and especially all around the world. Well, look what's happening in Afghanistan, Karzai. Just find a law that uh, makes women subject to whatever their husbands want and women have to women are it's enforced uh, marital rape women must give in to the sexual demands of their husband whether they want it or not they they can't go out unless their husband's allowed I mean it's just if this law existed with regard to any cultural group Mm -hmm. any minority Mm -hmm. other than women it would be immediately considered uh, a, a, a violation of human rights and the UN does regard it as a violation of human rights, but we don't hear the same hue and cry around it, and we ought to. But there's also, even in this country where, you know, uh, I just listened to Jermaine Greer speak recently, and she Mm. said she thought that the United States was more advanced than just about anybody else with regard to women's rights. So that tells you where the world is now, and that is not very good, because, yes, we we have, in California, we have two women uh, senators, who, by the way, are both extraordinary, especially Barbara Boxer. Mm -hmm. But look at all the rage that still gets directed against women and especially mothers past a certain age. Young mothers are idolized and and older mothers and watch out all you young mothers because this will happen to you too. As you age, the, the, the rage will come at you of the whole society. And so it's, it's because it's, we're split in this society. And we're split not only towards women but towards something that you, you could call the feminine but it's not just the feminine, it belongs to men too. But the whole society survives by creating a split, and that's the same as the split from nature. Exactly. Yes, I would love you to talk about that, about, um, well, this is what your book, Women and Nature, the roaring inside of her, is about, the connection between feminism and ecology. I would love to hear you talk about that about this split it's very profound in our culture and uh, it goes way back to that point when the three religions Christianity Judaism and Islam and Mohammedism came out of the same moment historically and were once joined 
And many people don't understand that Islam shares many of the same biblical figures and saints and prophets uh, with us, and they, they, including Jesus. You know, of course. so, so uh, many people who are Christian don't understand that Jesus was in the rabbinical tradition. Yes. And he was, uh, he intended, and the apostles all intended uh, Christianity to be a part of Judaism, not as opposed to Judaism. Mm-hmm. And so, and all of these religions uh, started with a kind of, you know, had had within them. It wasn't, it wasn't the overriding philosophy to begin with. But there was a seed of a, of a prejudice against women, and then when the Roman took on Christianity as as the state religion, yes. then there was a split from the body and from sexuality that was very severe. And that wasn't originally in Christianity, nor was it in Judaism, and it still isn't in Judaism as much. But it took on the ethos of a warrior culture, but all these cultures were to some degree warrior cultures. It's just that, that the Roman Empire was an empire, so they had to shape a kind of masculinity that was separated from sensual experience. Yes. And separated from place. Right. Separated from the land, and so that then becomes a separation from nature. And everything, of course, you can't separate yourself from the body, the land, nature, because you don't have to be in a park or around trees to to be in nature. You're in nature because you're in a body. <laughs> the body right. is nature. People forget that, That's you know. Right. So you can be in down, you know, in a subway in New York, and you're in nature because you're in your body. And one is constantly returned to to thirst and hunger and and feeling overheated or sexual desire. You're you're constantly returned to physical physical feelings and your connection to this larger whole spectrum of physical existence. And Mm -hmm. the way that this culture has dealt with that, the psychological mechanism is uh, of denial because it has to be denied since salvation, literally in religious terms, but also... Yeah, in psychological terms on a daily basis is looked at you, you get salvation by separating yourself from nature and being above nature and there's even people in sort of new age progressive movements who will still speak that way as if, as if anything material is bad anything spiritual is good which is completely to misunderstand yes. what the problem is but that what do you do with all that material with your own physical need the presence of, of yourself as being deeply embedded in nature what do you do with that if you're denying it you project it onto somebody else that's been the basis of racism if you look if you take apart racism which i did in one of my books in yes. more than one book but i yes. did that in uh pornography and silence i took apart oh. both anti-semitism and racism and my goodness in there. yes but the, the portrait that is made African-American people or of Jews is basically a projection of the body and, and of the fear of the body and the hatred of the body so, so that, you know, African-Americans are looked at as being more emotional, more sexual, as are women and the other people, group of people that all of this is projected on is women. Mm-hmm. Women are more pleasure-seeking, more emotional, mm-hmm. more trivial because they're, they're concerned with material things. And yet, of course, no man could get through the day without what what is woman's work, mm-hmm. you know, feeding and cleaning and washing clothes, making the bed, and, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, pornography and, and silence uh, 
changed my life, but I'm not going to go into that uh, <laughs> right I'll now. Just, I'll just say that many people think that in that book I was advocating censorship, and I was not. No I way. Not advocate the censorship of pornography because once you censor, because the judges who would decide what to censor and not to censor do not understand. <laughs> well, you know, they don't understand. The, it, it, it's, the analysis is too complicated, and it's within this, this culture refuses to see what is damaging in any way. You'd have to censor 75% of the culture. So, you know, censorship doesn't doesn't work, and it is in violation of the basic principles of democracy. What I was trying to do in that book was to explain the way we get past things that are damaging in the culture, in this, in this culture, uh, in a democratic culture, is to understand them. Yes, yes. Well, uh, to me, in that book, uh, you are advocating dignity, nature, and the body. Um, That's right, and sexuality. And sexuality. Actually, if you really got trouble to read much pornography, and by the way, I don't think of something that shows people making love or nude bodies as pornographic really at all, but it, it, was, it, it, it has nothing to do with, with sexuality. In fact, pornography is very prudish. If you look underneath, in between the lines, it's extremely prudish. I'd like to repeat uh, something that you said uh, in uh, a moment ago because it just set me on fire. Uh, you know, I often wonder because I think it's uh, it's the root of healing uh, how I can be closer to nature. And you said uh, you are nature because you are in your body. And uh, that just absolutely set me on fire. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now, Susan Griffin... But we're so, can you imagine? You, we're so schooled in this denial of this culture and the desire to separate it. Of course, the reason I say the reason that we want to deny the body is to create this illusion of immortality. Yes. Uh, that, and which, which you have to give to young men if you're going to send them onto the battlefield. Wow. Well, you may die at 19, but or in the Greek army, is even younger, 15. That, that makes you immortal. But you're going to be immortal. You're going to live in a, in a much better life and with a lot of honor in heaven. And this idea that of immortality really, you know, it can can convince. Uh, and it is. We see that it's convincing young terrorist men to blow themselves to bits. That's right. And, uh, um, you know, I, it, it's not that I, it, I'm not a person uh, who is a strict, uh, I'm, I don't go along with Christopher Hitchens. I mean, I, I, will, I think his, his book is a, his, his work and his atheist uh, pronouncements yeah. are a lot of fun, and I'm very glad he's out there saying that because that's a really important point of view to be out there. But I don't agree with that either. I don't agree with some white-bearded god and who, who's pulling all the strings. That to me is <laughs> a projection of monarchy. But I do, but I do think that there is another dimension to life, and I've experienced it. Yes. But I don't. I don't think that that dimension fits these rather not naive uh, ideas that oh well, I'm off to, I'm going off to heaven. I mean, once you have died, you, as you know yourself and exist, no longer exist. Maybe some spirit, I felt it after people have died, I felt their presence, mm -hmm. it's in a different form. And then that doesn't stay the same either. Nothing, nothing in this universe that we've ever seen, not ideas, not bodies, not planets, not stars, 
not earth, not trees, not leaves, not flowers. Nothing remains the same. It is all going through a process of transformation all the time. This is a good lead-in to uh, the question I was going to ask you, and uh, I hope it's not indiscreet, but I've read that you say that you are a mystic, and I would like to respectfully ask you if you are willing to speak about that. No, I'm, I'm happy to speak about that. I, I'm a mystic in the sense of, I, I'm, I guess uh, I'm somebody who, I'm an interesting mystic because I'm somebody who really dislikes mystification. <laughs> and I don't like, you know, sometimes mysticism can be shorthand for mentally lazy or mentally fearful. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said that about the fact that when you die, you actually die. You're gone as far as this form of yourself. And so something goes, something dies. It may not be, you, you may be reborn in another sort of form, but you're not going to be you. So, you know, we need to, the facing that is very important for the maturation of the soul. And that's where I am a mystic in the sense that I do believe there is a body of experience, of human experience that's quite real, that uh, can be studied to a certain extent, but not in the way that science studies things. To some degree, I mean, there's a, a woman whom I knew who died a couple of years ago. Um, I'll have to supply you with her name later. Her first name is Lucy Elizabeth. Sure. And I, I can't remember her yes. last name, but she actually did a scientific study unexplained phenomena, and it's quite an extraordinary book. And there, there is evidence for you know psychic sort of communication that goes beyond mere random, you know, explanation of that. Well, it's just out, you know, out of randomly this would just occur, you know, statistically. You know, there's also just a dimension of human experience that that can't be rationally explained, you know, in the way that Samuel Johnson would pick his rock and say that's there because my foot kicked it, you know. And and I've experienced it through my whole life. Anyone who writes poetry who's a poet experiences it all the time. You experience it as a creative writer. I mean, my work, by the way, I'm I'm very rational, sort of straightforward, and in, in discourse, and I and I love that. I love this kind of discussion. But my work is much more. That's where the poetry comes in. It's much mm-hmm. more like literature, and I do make stories mm-hmm. and uh, passages that try to get inside consciousness and describe these experiences. That, that have not been described or have not been explained in the rational canon. And it's so interesting that we live in this culture that, and it's fist on people being religious, which I find really obnoxious. Yes. I, I think that's not the business of anybody what the religion of the president or anybody who's running for public office is, and it's not, you have a right to be private about your religion. Mm-hmm. But moreover, it, but it insists that you have to go to church somewhere and and in the same same culture, we've got all these straight, and when have we ever had anybody Jewish as president or anybody, for that matter, you know, Buddhist or Islamic or, you know, you know that's, that's just unheard of. So I, I find that really obnoxious. I really dislike that. But at the same time, ironically, with all these people being so insistent that not only do people have a religion, but that they basically be Christian in order to hold public office, right. they almost never talk about the spiritual experience itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's forbidden. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a spiritual experience. 
Absolutely. There, there are two sides to equality in democracy. One is a very rational understanding that if I want to have free speech under the law and I want to have equality under the law, then I have to let you have free speech too, even if you're saying something I disagree with. Mm-hmm. That is a very basic concept in democracy, but it leads to a spiritual experience. And that is, because I'm thinking about this, it makes me empathize with you. Mm-hmm. Empathy is at the root of most spiritual experience. That's right. That sense of profound connectedness, yes. not only with other human beings, but with other forms of life, with animals, with plants, with trees, this profound creaturely feeling towards each other. Yeah, and, and I have felt that many times, and it doesn't seem to me that it's just a sort of bargaining selfish bargain because things work out better that way, but something that touches my heart and brings tears to my eyes and most everybody mm-hmm. else I know if they hear a certain poem or, or a song and it's, it's, and, and it's part of our natures and it's, it's not explained by self-interest. Exactly, exactly. I think that uh, rather than darling, perhaps the sweetest thing we can call each other is critter. well it's a wonderful privilege to be talking with you Susan and uh, we are going to bring this conversation around now so I'd like to ask you what what is it you would like to add to this I think you asked me a question earlier about you know is there do we have hope are there people capable of this deeper thought? There, there, I think in every generation there's people capable of you know, transformation that arise. And we have, you know, for instance, Van Jones has been influential with Obama and yes. a part of the administration. And here in Edwards and my area, you know, he's Californian. And we love him here. And he's got a center in Oakland where he's putting together the, the problem of, you know, kids who, who've been abandoned by society and you know, left to fend for themselves on the streets, if not without families, without any community support and without jobs, and putting that together with ecology, a, a green revolution, which is also a revolution for social justice. And so that connectedness, which is another way of seeing that we are all one, mm. I remember uh, you know, 20 years ago it was an idea that a lot of people who were progressives didn't even quite get. And so that's really, really shifting. And, you know, I think uh, we need a new feminist movement. You know, yeah, we need younger women mm-hmm. to begin to do this uh, thinking. I'm sure that they will bring things to it that, you know, that my generation has, has not yet. But we need them to start thinking. And, and again, I think the feminist movement uh, has moved beyond, at this point, men versus women. Yes. And I certainly have in my work. It's, it's, I think we had to be there. I did personally for a while just to get on my feet and redefine who I was as a woman and my position in society, be it clearly. But where I came to with that was that this is a system that's, that's not beneficial to any of us. In the same way that racism really is, you know, some of the people who are the strongest racists uh, have been traditionally in the past uh, white people who were working class or at poverty. Oh, who had terrible childhoods. And had terrible childhoods. 
point, and, and various forms of suffering. And instead of facing into their own suffering and, and seeing that they, they've been encouraged to blame, you know, a scapegoat, another group. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we, it's the same with women and men. And to begin to uh, understand the damage that this whole system, in the same way that racism has damaged our society, the prejudice against women, is very, very damaging. Yes. And and we need to, you know, be, be inquiring after this, exploring it, understanding it, uh, moving moving past it, and see how that connects, because it connects to every other issue. Certainly it connects to uh, warfare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Susan Griffin, thank you so much for your generosity of being with us today. Well, I'm so glad that you're doing this, and and, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Great. Thank you. Bye.